Good evening. Goodbye Forever by Nat Chang Rinpoche, Volume 2, Chapter 26, Part 1. Passing Strange. The long ride south from Sammy Ling to Bristol, a windswept tour of thinkingness and unthinkingness under rain-sodden skies. It didn't rain, but I became increasingly moist from the 70 to 80 mile an hour winds. The impact was damp air, chilled to the bone on arrival in Bristol. I'd left Sammy Ling without having exchanged addresses with Annie Chuying. I was not entirely comfortable with that. I was a fundamentally friendly, sociable individual. I would otherwise have naturally wished to stay in contact. Be that as it may, I'd remembered Jan McCulloch's advice from the first visit to Sammy Ling. I'd remembered that she thought it wisest not to exchange addresses on the basis that she did not trust herself and that she was almost old enough to have been my mother. This was an exaggeration on her part but her choice was a matter of integrity. She did not wish to change the shape of my life in a manner that would run counter to my being young and, she added, just at the beginning of the huge adventure of your life. By the end of my sojourn at Sammy Ling, I had started to feel that Annie Churying and I had come to like each other a little too much. This was dramatically wrong. She was a nun. Not only was she a nun, but a nun ordained by the 16th Gyalwa Karmapa, and he was a friend of Kyabje Dujam Rimshe Jigdral Yeshe Dorje. The consequences of impropriety were too horrible to contemplate. The words of Dujam Rimshe had sprung to mind. With each life circumstance, whatever is enacted, stare directly into the enactment with all the senses. There was never a better way to deal with anything. The other factor that predicated against dalliance of any kind was that I was still with debt. I had not left other than in my mind. I didn't hold myself guilty for having warm feelings but I would have held myself culpable if I'd acted on them, even to the slightest degree. In addition to this, I took a seriously dim view of anyone who began a liaison before concluding their existing situation. I deemed it dishonest and pusillanimous. One had to leave a relationship on the basis of its being inappropriate in whatever way. One then had to spend time alone in order to be free of another romance. Morphing from one association to another was the proclivity of those who were afraid to be alone. I had no fear of being alone. The other dysfunctional aspect of seamless serial monogamy, in my view, was that if one leaves someone for someone else, one cannot be believed when one says... I'm leaving you because you, in my experience, have appeared unkind, ungenerous, unsympathetic and uncaring. If one has not made such a statement, the rejected partner is deprived of what could be valuable feedback.
All that such rejected partners are likely to understand is that they were deserted in favour of someone deemed more desirable. Be that as it may, life was not always that neat and tidy. Or was that merely an excuse some people used? Still, however other people ordered their lives, I was determined to order my life honourably. Life could be emotionally fraught, but didn't have to be an emotional mess. The idea that one thing leads to another, however well plans are formulated, was a slipshod, slapdash, slovenly way of existence. That was well deserving of Dorje Bernatren's baleful butcher's blade. The baleful blade appeared to start dispatching various aspects of my life not long after I hit the road from Eskdale Muir. Papa Legba never showed when I was 12 years old, but the 16th Galois Kamapa had not been in Britain to force his hand. The motion of the scythe was subtle and subcutaneous, however, and the assault occurred as if in a game of chess that operated simultaneously on multiple levels. I bade Det farewell, in as kindly a way as I could. I didn't need to act the part of looking miserable, because that came quite naturally. I knew I'd be glad at some point, but delivering the information was something I found quite hideous. She accepted my decision, however, without the high degree of emotional carnage I'd feared. There was a long and fraught discussion as to why and why now, and I answered dutifully on every point. She then accused me of amorous interest in either Penelope, Rebecca or Merrill. I denied it fairly calmly and matter-of-factly. That was simple. There was no reality in the accusation. Penelope, Rebecca and Merrill were my friends. Det insisted for a while, but I ended the discussion by saying that the veracity of my denial would be self-evident to an increasing degree with every day, week or month that followed. That was all I would say. Spending too long on denial is what one does if one is guilty. Det could see I was in my intransigent mode and so she did not prolong the discussion of my suspected interest in Penelope, Rebecca or Merrill. It must have been clear to her from my demeanour that I found the suggestion as implausible as sudden conversion to Scientology. Even if I had been romantically inclined in that direction, I concluded with as well-crafted English as I could muster on the spur of the moment, I imagined that their parents would have welcomed me as much as your father, and I'd rather not submit myself to that kind of high society censure. I'm a randomly self-educated, working-class, avant-garde eccentric, with outre clothing, a demode hairstyle, outrageous philosophical speculations and untenable perspectives on art. 
so I would not be so gauche as to imagine I'd be well received at their homes. I shall stay within my own class bracket in future. For once, Det had nothing to say. She knew from the tone in my voice that I was speaking from the pinnacle of righteous certainty, as she'd once phrased it. Besides which, I continued after a momentary pause, I have not been, nor will I ever be, guilty of disloyalty, betrayal, treachery, infidelity, adultery, or anything else as contemptibly perfidious. She accepted the rebuttal of my supposed impropriety without demurral, at the same time accepted that we had no future. She accepted that her father would not be alone in his disapproval of me, and I'd seen it too many times before to doubt the outcome of liaisons with debutantes. Such things happened in stories, such as Lady Chatterley's lover, but I wasn't a character in a story. I lived in whatever the real world might be. The real world was open to question, but I knew the prejudices that it contained and they were as they were. There'd been recriminations, but I'd simply allowed her to say whatever she needed to say. I decided not to justify myself and didn't. I had decided to take the blame for everything. I did. The only perspective I volunteered was an enumeration of the aspects of my personality to which she most objected. I acknowledged that I was reprehensible in having entered into a relationship with someone who had no interest in Buddhism. I apologised for wasting her time. I pointed out that her father had a fairly low opinion of me and that, as she respected her father highly, she could maybe consider taking his evaluation seriously. Det was upset to lose me, but in the end only as upset as if one of her collection of Georgian boxwood egg cups had broken. I was entirely dispensable. There was nothing about me that she would seriously miss. Tears were shed, but the loss of Nakla Churgyam, alias Vic Simerson, didn't occupy her mind for more than a few days or at least that was the intelligence I received from Penelope, Merrill and Rebecca. I knew, however, that debt could feign a degree of stoicism that was convincing. Strangely, she distanced herself from the ladies. She practically cut them dead in the street. She declined a dinner invitation on the basis that her father had described partaking of fondue as being like pigs at the trough. She always had a touch of that, said Rebecca, but this time I felt there was an edge to her voice as if she actually meant to be hurtful. I mean, rather than putting on her usual Dorothy Det Parker. I really don't know how you stood it for three years. Well, let's say two. All right, two years, but she always had that hoity-toity number going, didn't she? To which I shrugged in vague agreement and Rebecca continued, 
We heard her talk like that to you right from the start. Maybe you never saw my expression, I smiled. I used to find it amusing. I suppose that I'm not horribly vulnerable, sensitive or susceptible, so I don't necessarily take subjective rebukes terribly seriously. Subjective opinions are not really worth a great deal. Anyhow, I never felt she meant anything by her rebukes. Well, not until the third year got underway. My smile was now absent. And I suppose I might have said something earlier, but, you know, I don't like to be critical. I knew that's how debt was from the start, and if it was all right then, why should I want to adjust her later? But, Merrill commented, debt did want to adjust you, didn't she? Well, yes, she did. Can't deny that, Merrill. I sighed. And in the end, that's why I've left. I suppose I could have pointed out the disparity between her desire to change me and my acceptance of her. I don't think it would have made any difference, though, Penelope sighed. No, I don't think it would have done. You're right, and actually... I did point that out at one stage of the proceedings. I laughed, the slightest laugh. She told me that the disparity existed because there was nothing about her that needed to change and that anyway she was not open to changing. She was so comical about it, however, that I didn't take her seriously. You know Det and her penchant for dramatic statements. Yes, and she got away with a lot with the use of that, Rebecca argued. But the disparity continued nonetheless. Yes, I suppose if I'd persisted with bringing it to her attention, she'd have had to have dropped the I'm perfect line. Knowing debt as I've done all these years, Merrill mused, I think that would have just made her angry and led to a lot of nasty rows. There never would have been rows, though, because it takes two to have a row. It would have led to her shouting and my making occasional replies in a flat, lifeless sort of way. You know, Det used to get quite upset with me for not getting angry. She'd say that Buddhism wasn't good for me or any Western person. Her father had told her that Buddhist passivity and acceptance came from a culture where most people lived in poverty and died before they were 40. Bloody self-satisfied bigot, Rebecca almost shouted. But I'd be interested to hear what you said in reply. Something to the effect that passivity and acceptance aren't ideas that can be used as simplistically as her father used them. I said that although I wasn't an expert, I'd studied quite seriously and could only say that I had no reason to consider her father as having any more than a rudimentary understanding of Buddhism, especially as it's practised in the Nyingma lineage. He could know almost nothing of Tibetan Buddhism from the books currently available. 
good for you, Penelope commented. So what did she say to that? She stated that my refusal to be angry was Buddhist and dared me to deny it. Her father may not have read about my particular branch of Buddhism, but he had read widely and deeply. Of course, I acknowledge that anger was regarded as a problem in Buddhism, but that my dislike of anger predated my becoming a Buddhist. I told her my father was an angry man and that I'd always loathed it. I hated seeing my mother being subject to his anger. What did she say to that? She said that I always managed to find a loophole to win an argument. She's impossible, snorted Penelope. So am I, I laughed. I just replied that that was what she always said to regain her ascendancy and it didn't matter to me who won or lost because for me it wasn't a battle or a competition. That must have raised her hackles. Yes, she told me she didn't care either because anger was natural and healthy and if I wanted to be two-dimensional it was my own lookout. She certainly wouldn't kowtow to my fanciful sensibilities. Yes, opined Merrill, that would suit the way she sees things. So what was your take on anger being natural and healthy? I disagreed. I said anger's a learnt habit and that, as such, it could be unlearned. Of course, that made me a repressed, emotionless, religious pedant. Really? That's absurd. If anyone's repressed, it's debt, even though she can fly into a rage. Rebecca remonstrated with a swish of her hair. I mean, you're so repressed you'd wear a giraffe-hide greatcoat with the tail still attached. At that, the three ladies laughed. Yeah, Rebecca nodded. Any attempt we ever made to give Debt any home truths, even in the gentlest way, led to her screeching at us like a scolded cat. Yes, Debt is very fragile under that cool, cynical exterior, Penelope offered with a troubled expression. She's really quite frightened of life, which is probably not surprising. Having one's mother die when one's young and then being quite cruelly jilted, that's enough to make anyone vulnerable and prickly. I think she must feel that she has to fight for her life or something. I told Penelope she was probably right and went off to town to buy the cheese for the evening's fondue. The next day brought a somewhat cataclysmic revelation. I came to understand from Penelope, Merrill and Rebecca that I could have found a romantic partner in any of them. Debt had been wrong in her suspicions of me, but entirely correct in respect of Penelope, Merrill and Rebecca. That was a revelation that surprised me more than anything had ever surprised me in my life before. It was like something from Shakespeare's Tempest believable only on stage. They'd arranged it. Each would give space to each other to find me alone for a forlorn hope tete-a-tete. Each coronary colloquy concluded in exactly the way each of them had anticipated. 
This gave rise to an anguish far beyond the end of my relationship with Lindy Dale or Alice. Quite apart from the assertion I'd made to Det, I couldn't have taken up with one lady whilst rejecting the other two. They knew it, I knew it. They knew that I knew it. The ladies, however, were committed to the forlorn hope and, despite everything, they felt it imperative to charge the ramparts of Heartbreak Hotel. The words of Dudgeon Rimshay were there for me, as they always were. With each life circumstance, whatever is enacted, stare directly into the enactment with all the senses. It had been the bargain from hell. I'd assured Det that I had no intentions in that direction a few days before. And there it was, entirely possible, but nothing could be done about it. It was hard to fathom how I'd lived in a house for almost three years with three ladies who would have liked me as a romantic partner, while I'd languished by a default in a doomed relationship. I should have left debt, but I was unwilling to put her at emotional risk before culmination of her degree course. A person needed to be unassailed by emotional turmoil at such a time. Debt could come across as having the strength and invulnerability of an armoured battleship, but although she appeared titanic, there were icebergs. Debt was actually more susceptible than most. I could be jilted on the eve of mounting an exhibition and simply plough my way through. I'd ploughed on before. But Debt had no such experience and no fundamental fortitude. I'd had reasons enough to leave debt in the second year, but it had only become intolerable in the third year, and by then I'd decided to simply see it out to the external assessments of degree shows. And now I'd parted from her, she wasn't as upset as I'd feared. On the other hand, I was far more upset than I'd anticipated, but for entirely different reasons. I could have lived with the three ladies in perpetuity. Debt had made it possible for me to live under the illusion that Penelope, Merrill and Rebecca were simply extremely good friends, by making me romantically unavailable. Now that Debt and I had separated, her words hung over me like Dorje Bernachchen's cleaver. She'd accused me of leaving her for one of her three friends. I denied it about as vehemently as anything of which one was innocent can ever be denied. It was a double bind, in which I had no choice other than to lose everything. Debt was possibly more perceptive than I was, and evidently intuited existen existential human facts that I'd missed. Was it Penelope, Rebecca and Merrill's enthusiasm to pose for me as subjects for my speaking with Raven's paintings? I'd thought that was simply their enthusiasm for my paintings. Maybe I was that naive. 
Maybe I made too little of their removal of clothing to model for oil paintings in which they'd be morphed with ravens. They'd liked my speaking with ravens paintings so much that they each wanted to be painted in that mode. I'd seen nothing so unusual about that. I'd sat naked for a painting of Le Déjeuner sur Herbe with two young ladies wearing Victorian dresses borrowed from Farnham Theatre. It had been an idea of a group of the foundation course ladies and they'd asked for a male volunteer. They'd wanted to paint a reversed gender version of the painting. Nothing amorous had come of that. We'd all taken it as normal at art school. Well, maybe it was, but maybe they'd been thinking about me in a different light and I was simply too naive to have suspected anything other than art.